You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to introduce us to T-SNEE. Yes, T-SNEE, which is a particular implementation of a dimensionality reduction method. So T-SNEE stands for is T-Distributed Stochastic Neighbor Embedding, so T-S-N-E. So it's a, it's a variant of a little bit older idea called stochastic neighbor embedding, and then it adds a T-structured distribution to this, which we'll talk about in just a second. So T-SNE is from, uh, I think, Lar- uh, Lawrence Vandermarten and Jeff Hinton uh, when Lawrence was visiting the University of Toronto. We've talked about nonlinear dimensionality reduction a little bit before and more generally unsupervised learning. Nonlinear dimensionality reduction is a kind of unsupervised learning where the objective really is to try to come up with a two or three dimensional representation of possibly very high dimensional data such that people can look at it. So our visual systems and our perceptions are very well suited for low dimensional spatial structure. When we're talking about you know, hundreds of dimensions or thousands of dimensions, it can be very hard to reason about structure. So there's a proliferation of methods over the last couple of decades that try to take possibly very high dimensional data and turn it into low dimensional data. Of course, the classic method for this is PCA and there's other kind of related ideas. The stochastic neighbor embedding, that is T-SNE, has become something that people really like because it seems to work well in a variety of data sets. And in particular, it seems to often identify sort of clustery structure that people intuitively are looking for. Now we might argue about whether or not it's inventing that, that structure. But nevertheless, it seems to often find useful stuff. And this is in, in contrast to some older methods like locally linear embedding or isomap and some other things that have also gotten a lot of attention, but people seem to really like T-SNE these days. The principle underlying many different kinds of nonlinear dimensionality reduction methods is to identify some property in the high dimensional space, most often relationships between the data. So is this point close to this other point? and then try to come up with a low-dimensional representation that preserves that in some way. The classic approach to this is something called multidimensional scaling, and a lot of the methods are variants of that. But nevertheless, the, the trick is to come up with some way to measure these relationships and some way to preserve them, such that the uh, things are sort of still interesting in low dimensions. Most often, you want close stuff to be still close to each other and far stuff to be far away. Um, but the devil is ultimately in the details about how you actually do that. So stochastic neighbor embedding does this in the following way. It says, I'm going to take one example from my data set and I'm going to look at distances to other examples. And then I'm going to look at essentially a distribution. I'm going to induce a distribution over neighbors based on that. So every point has a distribution over its neighbors where the idea is that maybe that distribution, if you were to draw from that distribution, you're more likely to draw the nearby guys than the far away guys. And so a typical kind of thing is, you know, maybe we put down a little Gaussian distribution on um, centered on one of these data points, and then we look at how much density all the other points get. So to be clear, we're taking every one of our data points and then using it to construct a distribution over the other data points where broadly speaking, we expect farther away stuff to have lower probability. And then we're going to do the same thing in the low dimensional space. And what we're going to do is then try to find a place to put every one of our data in the low dimensional space such that these two distributions are preserved, are, are very similar to each other. So that's what we mean by stochastic neighbor embedding, which is that if we were to have some kind of uh, stochastic notion of who your neighbor is, then we would find an embedding that is a representation in a low dimensional space such that this kind of distribution over your neighbors is preserved. Uh, so this idea of stochastic neighbor embedding has been around for a little while. 
Um, and then T distributed stochastic neighbor embedding essentially just has this kind of additional twist, which is that in the embedding space, we're going to allow for a very heavy tailed distribution, a T distributed distribution, um, sort of neighbor distribution. And that kind of just makes it more robust. So light tailed distributions such as Gaussians um, tend to act a little bit strangely, you know, whenever you get out into the tails because the probability decays so rapidly. Whereas T-SNE typically uses something like a Cauchy distribution, which is very, very heavy tailed. And this kind of causes T-SNE to, I think, to sort of be better behaved on a broader set of data sets. So it's a, it's a very popular thing to do. There's a lot of implementations of it out there. And like I said, it tends to produce kind of nice clusters. It has this downside, um, I should say, which is that it uh, requires performing uh, an optimization of a problem that is not convex. So two people running it on the same data set may actually get different embeddings. Um, they, they're often similar, but there's no guarantee about that the science that you do with your embedding will be uh, the same as the science that I do with my embedding with a different random seed. So that's a little bit, that's a little bit troubling. And in contrast to things like PCA, uh, which kind of always give you the same answer. So, uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's become very popular in biology and it's very nice for, for visualization and, um, and for exploratory data analysis. I think it's, it's, a really, uh, it's a really cool tool. You can find more about T-SNEE on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's question on Talking Machines is about statistical physics. I'm a student at Oregon State University, and I'm really excited about machine learning applications for statistical physics. What are you excited about in this area? Well, statistical physics and machine learning have a very long relationship. I think a lot of the, the people who sort of filtered into uh, machine learning and a lot of the framing of different ideas, uh, sort of say 25 years ago, uh, came from that uh, came from that community. And so you can see this in the way that we often talk about things like partition functions. And a lot of the models that we use, uh, particularly undirected graphical models, are kind of indistinguishable from the same models that are used in statistical physics. So a restricted Boltzmann machine, you know, I mean, that's an icing model. That is with binary observations, it's an icing model. Uh, just with a particular kind of energy. We often talk about energy models more broadly. We invoke the Gibbs distribution to think about the distribution over states. There's really a, a lot of the language that machine learning has adopted really does come from that from that community, as well as things like variational methods, where um, you know really a lot of the initial variational methods, kind of again, were at least motivated by physics and mean field approximations and things like that. And in fact, we still use mean field approximations in a lot of different ways. So there's a very long relationship, I think, between uh, statistical physics and uh, machine learning, and a lot of the people really have that that kind of uh, that kind of background. And when people think about neural systems, they're thinking about the emergent properties of relatively simple, si simple objects. That's what brought a lot of people from statistical physics into, uh, into machine learning. But then also in machine learning, we use a lot of tools like Markov chain Monte Carlo. And a lot, a lot of those tools really arose from, uh, again, the kind of statistical physics community, thinking about how to sample from different configurations and what their properties would be at different temperatures and so on. So there really is a lot of uh, a lot of overlap there, and then more recently, people in statistical physics um, and who are thinking about different kinds of condensed matter physics and things like that have started to look at how 
machine learning tools can be used to perform better simulations and make better predictions about the properties of things like amorphous solids and so on. So there, there is a lot of overlap between these areas, and a lot of the people really kind of have historically had one foot in, uh, in either of these fields. So there's a lot to be excited about at this interface. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Hal Dome of the University of Maryland. And when we sat down with him at NIPS this past year, we asked him the same question that we ask all of our guests first. How did you get where you are? So I've been there for five years. And before that, I was at University of Utah, um, also faculty there for about four years. Um, and then before that, I was a grad student in L.A. at University of Southern California doing sort of natural language processing stuff. And then before that, I was at Carnegie Mellon. And then before that, I was in high school. So. <laughs> So um, you work a lot with NLP, natural language processing. Right. How did you get interested in it? I think actually a lot of people sort of my generation have sort of this weird way that they encountered NLP. Um, so for me, when I was an undergrad, um, I was a math major and uh, I was going to a bunch of classes, obviously. That's what you do when you're an undergrad. And there was this other guy um, who I noticed I had like three classes with. Um, and so finally I decided to go talk to him. And uh, he was a double major in computer science and math. And we were talking about things we were interested in. And we both like math. And we both like computer science. And we both like uh, sort of linguistics and languages and stuff like that. And then um, he was like, hey, have you ever heard of this thing called LTI, which is the Language Technology Institute at CMU? And I'd never heard of it. I didn't know that like NLP was a field. Um, and so I went and I met with a couple people there. And sort of immediately started as a, like undergrad research assistant. And it was sort of like, you know, all these random things that I was interested in came together in like this very surprising way. Because like in high school, I remember we were like writing stupid computer programs that would like generate artificial sentences by grammars. And usually they would be like insulting other people in the class. <laughs> of course. Because um, that's what you do that's when you're you in, high, in school. high school. Yeah. Um, and so it was really like... Uh, you know, I, I don't think anyone really knew that this was an area, and I certainly didn't. And sort of by strange coincidence, this guy um, who told me about it, uh, he graduated and he went off to Microsoft working in the programming languages group. And then like five years later, I ran into him again because he had switched from PL to NLP at Microsoft. And now he's like, doing everything NLP at Microsoft. So this is Chris Quark, and Chris is awesome. Um, and so I think if it wasn't for him, I probably never would have found NLP. Nice. So what are the questions that you're tackling right now? What are you, what are you looking at? Yeah, so um, there are a couple of things that we're working on that I think are pretty exciting. So um, we had this demo a couple nights ago here at NIPS where um, we have this question-answer system that can um, answer questions in real time. So... Uh, basically, sort of unlike traditional systems like, you know, Watson that played Jeopardy, um, you know, that gets to hear the whole question and then try to figure out an answer. So our goal is to be able to answer incrementally. So there's this interesting trade-off between, like, should I wait for more information, um, which costs time? And in the context of a game, it also costs, um, you know, you could lose. But, um, you know, in a non-game setting, uh, I think in general, this question of, 
like acting under incomplete information and sort of deciding when you need more information or when it's um, okay to just go ahead and make a make a prediction now is sort of a nice overarching theme uh, to work on. Um, another problem that we've been working on, which has a similar flavor, although a bit more complicated, is this simultaneous machine interpretation problem. So in traditional machine translation, um, even in speech-to-speech translation, uh, I guess you can think sort of like Skype translate. Uh, someone says something, they pause, then the computer thinks for a second, and then it produces a translation. Hmm. Um, and this works in sort of monologue settings. Um, it would probably even work in this setting. Um, but in a setting where you're having a dialogue where there's a lot of back and forth, uh, it's really, really painful. Yeah. Um, and so simultaneous trans- or simultaneous interpretation as done by humans was more or less invented for the Nuremberg trials because they realized that it would take, I think, like three or five years to do the trials if they did consecutive translation. Um, so we've been working on this in the context of um, doing it by machine. And it has the same sort of flavor. You know, you can wait to hear more of the foreign sentence before you start producing words in the, the target language. Um, but then you get behind and the conversation becomes stilted and awkward. Um, or you can just sort of go ahead and blast through, uh, in which case you might make errors, which you might need to correct later. Um, and so these two problems have sort of this similar theme, um, but they're they're very different. And I think one of the things that's super exciting about the, the interpretation stuff is I think uh, people who do this are amazing and I have no idea how they do this, but I think we can be better than them. And I think that's, uh, it, it, that's sort of a, it's a different type of NLP problem than I'm used to working on. Usually sort of human performance is like the upper bound we expect of, of systems. And I think this is one place where we can do better. Yeah, definitely. Because you have the ability to do more precise recognition faster. Yep. You don't have to pause and like, but that's a, that's an interesting question. If you're doing simultaneous translation and you're a machine and you're just going to blast through, how do you account for context or 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 sh- or irony? <laughs> yeah. So these things are like a big problem for us because <laughs> uh, like all of these things are grounded in like the world and our experience and um, you know sort of getting this stuff into NLP systems has always been like one of the biggest challenges. So I think the trade off really is that. Um, humans are really good at anticipating Mm -hmm. and they can use this to um, try to get ahead of the speaker. Uh, So one of the things you see a lot, um, so we do a lot with uh, Japanese to English translation. Mm. And this is because Japanese word order is basically as unlike English word order as it could possibly be. Um, And so like they put verbs at the end of sentences. And so if you want to say something like... um, uh, the, the woman ate a sandwich, you say something like uh, woman, and then you mark it as the subject, sandwich, mark it as the object, and ate. And so if you're a human interpreter and you're in the context of like, you know, Alice went to the restaurant, she ordered like her lunch, uh, you know, the woman ate a sandwich. So you might be able to predict before you actually hear the word ate that right. ate is going to be the verb. Um, and so this is something people are really good at. Um, and it's something that right now machines are not so good at. Um, on the other hand, humans have like major short-term memory problems. Uh, so if you talk to an interpreter, one of the reasons why they try to stay as close to the speaker as possible is because if they lag too far behind, they'll just forget what was said. Yeah. 
And um, uh, it, so, so that's one big problem. The other big problem is um, lexical access. So there's a bunch of like cognitive work that sort of shows that the amount of time it takes you to think of a word is roughly inversely proportional to its frequency. Mm. So um, if the foreign language speaker says something like dachshund, it might take you like way too long to like figure out like the exact right word and you might just say dog. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe later if you have time and you remember, you go back and correct. But um, in general, you don't have time. So uh, so as, as amazing as humans are at this task, they're primarily taking advantage of their knowledge of the world and their ability to do prediction. But they're suffering from the fact that um, they have limited short term memory. Their sort of stack overflows at some point and um and this lexical access time, which are problems that computers don't have. Right, right. They're filling a lot of gaps. They're compensating for a lot of things that they're bad at. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, we're nowhere near as good as people, although there are some results that say that uh, not our, not this sort of systems we've been working on, but, but some of our friends, um, there are different levels of interpreters, um, and it's basically how much you have to pay to hire them to interpret. And um, we, according to some measures, we might be about as good as the most inexpensive interpreter you That's can find. That's pretty good, though. Um, but, like, in comparison to, say, UN interpreters, who are probably the best in the world, mm. um, like, it's it's not even close. They're, they're, they're still way, way better than... Uh, then we will be even in the next couple of years. So you've got you've got interpretation of like a couple of years of college French at this point. Yeah, that's about right. Um, you know, certainly better than me. Um, probably better than most bilingual speakers mm. who haven't been trained to interpret. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's. A, I mean, it's a really challenging task. Um, even like UN interpreters, they tend to interpret for only fifteen minutes and then they switch off with someone else because. They're, it's exhausting. It's just so tiring. Yeah. And if I'm right, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, uh, UMD has a really strong linguistics and, and neurolinguistics department. Do you ever work with them or, or bounce stuff off of them for NLP problems? Or Yeah. So this is actually one of the things I really like about Maryland is we have this big like language science center now, um, which brings together people from, I think, like 15 different departments and mm -hmm. like six different schools. Um you know, sort of the bulk is maybe in linguistics, but there's also philosophy and psychology and, and cognitive science and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, so there's uh, um, I guess the people I interact with most are the people more on the cognitive side, mm -hmm. um, although there are really interesting connections to sort of the neuro side. So if you're training to be I'm going to keep talking about interpretation because that's what I've been thinking about. But if you're training to be an interpreter. Um, one of the first things that they'll have you do is um, this thing called shadowing. Um, so shadowing is you listen to someone speak and you try to repeat in their language what they're saying word by word um, with as little delay as possible. Mm. And um, actually normal people can do this. So if, uh, um, if you spend about 20 or 30 minutes practicing uh, you can shadow with a delay of about one or two syllables, um, which is really quite amazing. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, you know, you can even start doing it now as I'm speaking, <laughs> like trying to like think in your head, like, what would I do? Of course, thinking in your head is always dangerous because you can confirm that like, oh, I can do this. Like, right, right. You have to actually force yourself to speak. Totally. Um, but yeah, so people, sort of normal people can be trained to do this um, pretty quickly. Um, and one of the sort of side interesting cognitive facts is that 
if I'm speaking and you're shadowing me uh, and I introduce intentional errors into my speech, mm. you will correct them and you will be totally unaware that you corrected them. Oh. Um, it depends on the type of error, of course, but uh, certain types of errors you will just correct without noticing. Wow. Um, so that's one of the first things that you do if you're trying to learn to interpret. Then the next thing you do is you do paraphrasing. So you watch someone on TV and you try to repeat back in their language what they're saying, but um, worded differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then and then finally you go to um, trying to move to a different language. But but this whole business of shadowing has um, sort of really deep connections both in cognitive linguistics and neurolinguistics. Um, so there's this big debate in um, neurolinguistics about sort of whether the brain is predicting things ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know enough about the area to like take a stand on, on this or not. Um, but we certainly have lots of people um, who work sort of in and around this problem. And so like the classic examples are, you know, I say something like, uh, I got some coffee and added some sugar and stirred it with a and then if I say spoon, then your brain is sort of like happy. Right. And if I say like asparagus, then your brain <laughs> no. goes like, ah, what's going on? <laughs> um, and, you know, there are all these hypotheses about like what is at when the brain starts firing there, what's it actually doing? Um, and I think, you know, the jury is still out on this question. Um, but uh, the other sort of interesting thing here is that if I if I corrupt in a different way, so if I say the same thing, so um whatever it was, I, I, I had a cup of coffee and I added sugar and stirred it with, and if I say, and your brain already goes crazy, presumably because it's a, expecting spoon and Anne is incompatible with spoon. Got it. There's all this presumably prediction that the brain is doing. And one of the big things that interpreters do when they're interpreting is making huge use of their ability to predict what's coming up in the future. And uh, it's so the obvious question is like, well, you know, can we get a bilingual speaker, stick them in like some imaging device and like look at what their brain is doing? The problem is that like in order to do these studies, you have to very, very carefully control the context. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I switch to a different language and maybe different things happen in the brain. But it's like, well, that could be because like the words are different. It could be because the words sound different. Like there are all these things that you just can't control for. And so it gets really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it sounds like a lot. How did the demo go? Oh, I thought it went really well. Um, there was pretty much a like continuous stream of people. Um, I think one thing that we had talked about doing that we didn't do was to make like NIP specific questions. Uh-huh. Uh, so one of the challenges was that like um, very few people could answer many of the questions, uh, including me. I don't know any <laughs> no, of these no. like these trivia things. Um, but yeah, like uh, people competed. There were a couple of cases where um, so that we typically ran rounds of like five or ten questions. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of the groups of people did manage to beat the computer. Um, the computer was uh, sort of nerfed a little bit. So the the ver- so we, we ran a competition maybe two months ago against uh, Ken Jennings, the like Jeopardy champion. Um, and we won, I think, 300 to 140 or something like that. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, we were super psyched. <laughs> I mean, we uh, we definitely, I don't think anyone had like a strong guess going in. Like we thought we would probably either win by a lot or lose by a lot, but we weren't really sure which way it was going to go. 
Um, but the system playing against Ken, it was basically making predictions and considering buzzing every four words. Mm-hmm, mm. um, it could be every word, but this was running on um, Jordan's laptop, and uh, we didn't want to tax his laptop too much. Uh, so for the version that we were running um, in the demo, uh, it was only making predictions every sentence. So mm. this gave the the humans a bit more of a chance. More chance to predict and yeah, get, a, right. get a hand Especially up. when there were long sentences. Right, yeah, right. Excellent. Um, but yeah, I thought it was good. I mean, I think... Uh, In some sense, I actually enjoyed it more than just doing a poster um, because we also did have a poster. And so if people wanted to know what was going on under the hood, uh, we could talk about that. Um, But it was one of those things where I think to really understand how the system's working, like actually playing against it gives you almost more insight than we could communicate with a poster in, you know, a a minute or two. Totally. Yeah. So talk more about that, that idea of like, understanding and knowledge transfer, especially when you're working with a really uh, complicated topic. Um, When you can't demo with someone, what do you do to fully express the the ideas that you're trying to get across? Um, Well, so if I'm giving a talk, I'll I'll often do sort of a fake demo where I'll reveal a clue like word by word on a slide so that people in the audience can kind of play along. Um, and, and some people have, so this is sort of a variant of this quiz bowl game. Uh, and some people have played this game. Uh, so like when I teach undergrads, maybe about 10% of the class has played at some point. Um, but I think, uh, to other people, uh, an example that I, I've started giving is, um, actually there, there's this book that I just finished last night because I, couldn't sleep. And uh, the the main character in the book works in uh, some sort of hipster bookstore in Brooklyn. And one of the things that happens in the book is like some old guy comes into the bookstore and is like looking for a book, but like doesn't know what it's called and like can barely describe the plot. And so like he says something and then she tries to think of like, what can I ask him to try to like tease out Uh, more information. And you have this trade-off between, you know, I want to ask questions that are going to give me information, but I also want to ask questions that he's likely to be able to answer. Because if he can't answer the question, like, that's not so useful. (laughs) Um, So I I think that really, like, maybe the the sort of longer-term direction for this type of research is really this sort of collaborative question answering where there's some information that you want, like I want to buy this book and I can kind of describe what it's about. Maybe I can recall something about the author. Like, I don't know, the author was, you know, maybe it was written in like the early 1940s or something. Um, Maybe I can even remember what it looks like. Like, you know, like, oh, I think it had a blue cover. Um, but there's probably other stuff that I just can't remember at all, right? Like, you know, did the protagonist have a daughter named Penelope, right? And like, you know, if I could answer that question, I could probably pinpoint the book, but like, I probably can't answer that question. So I think that, um, I think that moving these sort of question answer systems to more dialogue systems where you're actively doing information seeking, um, querying the person, Um, And then really trying to understand, like, I mean, I guess you really have to understand more about, like, how human memory works Mm -hmm. to understand what sort of questions are you reasonably going to be able to ask. Yeah, yeah. What do you think is the, 
next step to to move these systems to a dialogue system instead of a questioning answering system because i mean that to me the dialogue system that feels revolutionary right yeah um so it's really hard <laughs> um because dialogue systems you have to have users right and which means that really you have to have some sort of minimal viable product mm-hmm. before you can actually mm-hmm. start a, mm-hmm. a system um, but one of the things sort of, I guess, looping back to some recent research we've done. So we had this paper at ICML this past summer um, where the question we were a- asking was, um, suppose that I have some system uh, that's maybe hand engineered. Uh, maybe it's learned, but let's assume that it's hand engineered. Um, and it like solves a task okay. Uh, so the example we had was like, you go, so this is when I was uh, spending some time at Microsoft. So I'm going to give an, a Bing example. So you go to Bing.com. Bing shows you a bunch of like news stories or whatever. Um, they lay the page out in some way. They assign different real estate to different stories. They choose like font size, layout, all sorts of stuff. Um, and so what you might want to ask is like, could I design an optimal layout for mm. a particular user? Mm-hmm. And... Um, so this is a really hard prediction task because you're jointly predicting over like a very large number of variables. And, um, it's also a hard prediction task because no one's ever going to tell you what the right answer was. Uh, probably no one can tell you what the right answer was. So kind of all you can do is like, you have this system that's been implemented, which is like the current bing.com that does whatever the heck it is that it does. Um, and then you can get some sort of weak feedback or partial feedback or, or we call it like bandit feedback um, from users who interact with the system um, looking at like click through or hover time or something like that. And so then the question is like, how can I learn to make joint predictions uh, under bandit feedback when I have access to some underlying system that's like good but not perfect? Um, And so if you compare this to like previous research, um, sort of in the imitation learning space of trying to solve these problems, they typically assume that what you're trying to do is you're trying to imitate an expert and the like not even often stated assumption is that the expert is optimal. Uh, And then the goal is to learn something that's not too much worse than the expert. But in this case, the expert is like, the current implemented system. So like learning something not much worse than the current implemented system is like right. not very useful. Um, so so the, the sort of main result we had there was that like, yes, if you, if you sort of design the algorithm in the right way, you can actually learn something that improves on existing systems. And you can also do this under this sort of bandit feedback. And so I think that, I mean, my hope is that it's, technology like this that's really going to be able to allow us to develop dialogue systems because this is exactly the right the same setting it's you have to have some sort of minimal viable product because otherwise humans just won't interact with it um and you know you sort of release it you look at not you look at the system looks at how people interact with it um you have to have some sort of external measure of success so you know did they find the book they were looking for Um, And then, you know, you hope that you can learn something that improves. Um, And I think that this goes for sort of all of these problems, like the question answering, the dialogue, the simultaneous interpretation, any of these things where we're trying to make something that actually does better than people uh, on a task. We need something that's going to be able to learn to improve rather than just learn to mimic. Hal Domey of the University of Maryland. 
Yeah, I you know I really love his blog. It's really thoughtful and definitely worth reading. Also, he's an awesome follow on Twitter. We'll have a link to Hal's Twitter feed on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. <laughs> <laughs>